Hiya all, warmest welcomes to yet another instalment of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast where we're still in a spare room in freezing North Wales which is a bit more like Siberia unless that's just me being Nesh and are still seeking out for you guys the more obscure and long forgotten cases from all over the UK and Ireland. I'm Paul, the creator and host of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast where it's fantastic as ever having you guys all joining me here today. It means the absolute world and I hope that the episode finds you all good and well. Now if you tuned in last episode you will have heard that that tale, Monsters of Merseyside, Evil at Eastham Rake, was originally marked down to be only the first case out of two for that episode. But there was that much to Robbie and Paul's tragic tale that as I was writing it I decided that theirs would make for an episode of its own and I moved the second case that I had in mind to be the focus of this week. That's how the show works out sometimes, things get a bit juggled about if I deem that it makes for a better more structured episode or a run of them and I thought that that one did because this was a story I didn't want to take anything away from. The feedback I've received concerning the episode leaves me the impression that you guys shared in the absolute horror and revulsion that I do concerning it because it is a truly awful despicable crime I'm sure you'll agree. But names such as Paul's and Robbie's are names that deserve never to be forgotten. They're no less important than more headline-grabbing ones such as Jamie Bulger or Madeline McCann. I do appreciate the feedback that I've received so far concerning their tale from you guys. And anyone who does want to discuss it or offer their opinions on the actions of Stephen Heaney, then I invite you to do so. Hopefully, you know by now where to get in touch with me. I do wish that I could bring a bit of a lighter tale this week. But as the episode once again is called Monsters of Merseyside, I'm afraid that I just can't bring you that. But we shall get onto that tale shortly. I've also finished now this month's bonus Patreon episode of the show, so keep an eye out for it as it will be coming very shortly, very, very shortly. On that subject, by the way, I feel that I should address an issue that was raised on the Patreon site a short time ago also. And just to be clear, this is not me having a moan at all. I welcome all feedback always, but the show is also my forum to address things to the wider audience too. A former Patreon supporter commented that in their opinion, they felt that I was losing my enthusiasm for doing the show due to the now staggered release dates of bonus and regular show episodes. So I just thought I'd clarify, I am in no way losing any enthusiasm for the show, I take it incredibly seriously and it's just as much my passion to do it today as when I first started doing it more than two years ago. It's simply that sometimes, what can I say, it's a one person show and real life and existing commitments sometimes unavoidably get in the way. I'd also always rather put out an episode that I'm happy that I've researched and written to the best of my ability and if that means to do so that it's nine days apart instead of seven or a week off in between then there you go, so be it, I set very high standards for myself here. The bonus Patreon episode this month contains a case from the early 1980s that's always intrigued me and one that I hope will intrigue you folks too when you hear it. Should you wish to be one of these guys, like this week's new supporters getting my gratitude and shoutouts, Ains Sweeney, Erica Anderson, Roxanne Jollett, William Tower and supporters Robert and Brenda, then you can use the link in the episode show notes or by seeking out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, always inclusive of the podcast suffix there guys, over on the Patreon site. It's easier to do than checking Prince Andrew's diary for future engagements, it costs less than is probably down the back of your sofa as we speak, and before you know it, 
You could be listening to tales such as Obsession by the Sea, The Teddington Lock Towpath Murders, or Hot Off the Press, The Enigma of Enfield Lodge, to name just a couple of them. Or depending on your chosen tier, you can get some stickers, some postcards, maybe a script. It's up to you guys, it's all there for you to have a look at. So before we meet another monster of Merseyside, and I do warn you, this is a real piece of work this one. I once again have a short word from this week's show sponsor, HelloFresh. Now you're fed up of the same old meals week in, week out. You've got the stress of shopping for fresh stuff, trying to mix things up a bit, but maybe not having the time or enthusiasm because you're bored with the same old. And if you want to shake things up, HelloFresh offer you the solution to do this. With one of their boxes, you're getting delivered direct to your door a selection of wonderful step-by-step recipes of your choosing from all across the world. All the ingredients that you need to do so, and the perfect portion sizes of all these, so it's your belly that's full, and not your bin. As the UK's leading recipe box service, each week HelloFresh offers you a choice from 19 different recipes. These cover all cultures, all countries, and are even suited for those who are watching their waists, all are catered for. It's all down to your choosing when you sign up to HelloFresh. So aside from the great and varied recipes on offer for you to choose from, your perfect portion sizes as I've said, and step-by-step instructions for each, that are so easy you don't even have to buy them a drink first, with HelloFresh you have control over exactly what you get from them, delivered to your door. You can alter the size of your box, where it's delivered to, you can even skip a week if you want, because no worries, you aren't tied into any minimum term when you sign up. Now I've had the HelloFresh experience myself and I can certainly say that the recipes do range. You find yourself wondering about meals that you've never tried, probably meals that you've never even thought of. They also really are that easy to do and there's something to be found in there for everyone. And to top it off, how would you like a total of 60 quid off four of these boxes? That's what HelloFresh are kindly offering listeners of the show as sponsors this week. So to claim this great offer, just head over and sign up at www.hellofresh.co.uk. Once that's done, you choose your recipes from what's on offer, plus the size of your desired box, your delivery slot and address, and simply use the unique code TRUECRIME at checkout. Boom. 60 quid of four HelloFresh boxes ensuring you have a brand new stress-free menu on your doorstep, then onto your plate. So this week then on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast comes the second tale of a monster of Merseyside, a case that was meant originally to feature in last week's episode as I said, and a case that actually takes place only a very short distance from the village of Eastham, where we were last episode on the show so some of the same names may crop up through here due to the same police force being involved. The episode this week deals with a horrific senseless murder and an individual that if anyone ever was, is truly fitting to be called a monster because when you hear the episode, you'll certainly wonder how someone responsible for such horror can even possibly have a shred of humanity. The episode this week contains descriptions of a crime involving an elderly person that some listeners may find disturbing or distressing, so please use your discretion as always whilst listening, guys. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiasts this week for the second of the Monsters of Merseyside episodes. We look at a case I've entitled The Circuit Not Properly Wired. 
So last week then on the show, we were in the area of Eastham looking at the case of Stephen Heaney, which horrified the area back in 1995. If you haven't yet heard the first Monsters of Merseyside episode, Evil at Eastham Rake, then if you head back and listen into it, I did set the scene for the area and describe it, and the case that's focused upon in this episode indeed takes place only a very short distance from Eastham. Mentioned within the previous episode was the area of a spittle in the Wirral Peninsula, where following his hideous crime, Heaney went to dump the items he'd used to murder Paul Barker and Robbie G on a plot of land adjacent to the railway station car park there. And it's Spittle where the case this episode finds us. There isn't really much to say about it. I couldn't find any juicy stats. It's mainly a residential suburb. It's close to the motorway network. St. Patrick supposedly blessed a well in the area's Brotherton Park there. Former British Prime Minister Harold Wilson spent his school years living there, and it's where Paul Heaton, lead singer of bands The House Martins and The Beautiful South, hails from. Now, I saw Paul Heaton live at a gig many years ago, and as a bit of an aside, I've never seen anyone smoke so much in my life. He would have put Cancer Man from the X-Files to shame, I tell you. And according to good old Wikipedia as well, hip-hop superstar Nevo D hails from there also. Yeah, I've got all of his albums. What the hell that is. For almost 40 years, a large detached house in a residential street of the area, number 23 Poulton Road, was the home of 74-year-old widow and mother of three, Alice Rye. Alice had lived in the house with its large pleasant gardens since the early 1960s when she'd moved over from a native North Wales following a marriage to her husband John. The couple had fallen in love with the property upon first seeing it, and following their marriage had remained happily there, raising their three children, Davina, Rowena and Derek. John Rye worked for a West African trading commodities company, eventually rising through the company ranks to become a director of it, thus affording the Rye family quite a comfortable lifestyle for the time. They were well-travelled due to John's job, and all were to develop the travel bug as a result. It resulted in the Rye children all eventually attending university and going on to greater successes, Rowena and Davina both travelling the world working for British Airways, while son Derek made an even further move to South Africa, where he followed in his father's footsteps and began working in the trading commodities market, eventually going on to run his own company. Sadly, in 1986, John Rye passed away. And although by that time her children had all flown the nest and gone on to have families of their own, Alice couldn't bear to leave the £175,000 house that she and John had built into a loving home over the previous 25 years. Comfortably off through John's pension fund, she remained in the house and instead threw herself into being an active member of the community, especially as a member of the congregation of Spittle's Holy Trinity Church, where she attended without fail each Sunday. Alice was a regular figure, always to be found sat with the same circle of her friends and fellow worshippers each service. Her faith expanded to encompass a social circle also, and she became an active volunteer for the church's Wednesday friendship group, helping to organise and assist with events. If this didn't keep Alice busy enough, she was also a member of the Brimstage branch of the Women's Institute, which she again attended regularly and was involved in the support and organisation of its functions due to her role as a committee member, a role that she'd held for 15 years. 
In fact, busy and active seemed to be words that sum Alice up to a T. When she wasn't attending the church or the women's institute, she was equally as busy at home, be it doing embroidery, tapestries, cooking, or even just doing an established household routine. Alice was always doing something. Yet for someone so busy, she always managed to make time for other people and was highly liked and respected by all who knew her as a result, as well as being dearly loved by her family. And just because Alice's family was spread far and wide, as we've said, her son and his family lived in South Africa, or both of her daughters and their families adopted for Hampshire and Surrey, it's not to say that she didn't see or speak to them regularly. She was especially close to her family, and her grandchildren would often come up to stay with her at Poulton Road, visiting several times each year during the school holidays and mid-term breaks. Alice also kept a close relationship with her surviving elder sister Anne Lemon, who lived more than a 100 miles away in the village of Newborough on the island of Anglesey just off the North Wales coast. Although this is a bit of a distance and you can't just pop more than 100 miles for a visit whenever you want, the two sisters did see each other quite regularly and spoke on the telephone almost every day. Such a close relationship they had, Alice even moved back to the island for almost two months in 1997 to help look after her older sister while she was convalescing following a serious operation. It was the kind of thing that kind-hearted Alice would do in a heartbeat. Incidentally, on a bit of an aside, we have been to the island of Anglesey before on the show, way back in the first series of The Enthusiast, when I covered the horrific crime committed by Matthew Hardman in the episode The Anglesey Vampire. If you don't know of that one, or you haven't heard that episode yet, then go and have a listen, because you will meet another monster there. Trust me, it's a case that will chill you to the bone, that one will. So back in the room, this kind and caring nature extended further than just towards her family, and Alice was as equally as kind-hearted to her friends and the local community, where she was known as a generous soul who gave lots to charity and was always generous with birthday gifts for her friends, even her friends' children or grandchildren. There'd always be at least a tenner placed within a birthday card for everyone. Aside from her friends at the church, the WI and the Wednesday friendship group she was part of, Alice had especially close relationships with her immediate neighbours who lived either side of her, Phyllis Kellett and Geoffrey Howarth, both of whom had a spare key to Alice's home in case of an emergency. Alice and Phyllis especially had been close friends for many years, and at least once each day without fail, one or the other would call upon their neighbour to see if the other one was alright, if they needed anything, or even just to pass the time as friends do. It was simply another part of the structured familiar routine that Alice had, that when you get to a certain age you must appreciate, for as well as all the social activities that she did, Alice was an incredibly house-proud woman who kept on top of her home. She had a set routine where she would rise early each day and would spend the early hours of each morning keeping on top of her chores around the house, cleaning her brasses, polishing and scrubbing, the type of cleaning that seems to be a generational thing, do you know what I mean? Usually finished by the late morning, Alice's routine then consisted of her setting out from home to make a trip to a local newsagent's, which was located a short walk up Poulton Road to opposite the Three Stags pub on the junction of here and the B1537 Spittle Road. She would buy a copy of the Liverpool Echo, quite often also a single can of Guinness to enjoy with her lunch, 
Lady After My Own Heart, which she'd have on a tray in front of the television whilst watching the lunchtime news. Her afternoons, as we've described, were inevitably filled with activity. A regular as clockwork routine this was, and as we've said, at least some part of the morning Alice would either call in on Phyllis or vice versa. Tuesday the 10th of December 1996 was no different. The two neighbours had caught up late in the morning where Alice had told her friend about the Women's Institute Christmas lunch that she was looking forward to attending on the Wednesday afternoon. Alice had been in her usual good spirits and seeing Phyllis home had promised to call around for morning tea the next day as it was Phyllis's birthday. So when it got to almost midday on Wednesday the 11th of December and Alice had still not called around, Phyllis became concerned. It was most unlike the conscientious woman to break an engagement, especially on an occasion such as a birthday, and Phyllis was worried that Alice had taken ill. There was no answer when she'd tried telephoning, and calling around to the house, Phyllis had received no answer from knocking on the door or ringing the bell. There was no television on, and no sign of Alice when she looked through the window, and now, somewhat apprehensive, Phyllis decided to use the spare key Alice had given her to enter Alice's house to check if she was alright. She said later, I rang the bell but there was no answer. Alice had two locks on her front door and when I tried it I realised it would not open. But I turned the key again and it opened. So as we've said Phyllis was understandably apprehensive to go in, not knowing what she might find in there. It must have crossed her mind that she may find a friend seriously ill, perhaps having had a stroke, perhaps sadly even having passed away. As she was debating whether to enter the house, she saw Alice's neighbour from number 25, 68-year-old Geoffrey Howarth, who was returning from escorting his disabled daughter to a bus stop on the opposite side of Poulton Road. Upon hearing of Phyllis's concerns, Geoffrey shared them, agreeing that it was most unlike Alice and agreeing with that question to accompany Phyllis to have a check around the house. Together then, the two entered. A check of the downstairs of the property revealed no sign of Alice and there was no response from repeated calls for her. So with Geoff leading, and by this time now sharing Phyllis's apprehension, they decided to make their way upstairs. There was no sign of Alice in her bedroom at the front of the house, nor in the guest bedroom next to it, and nor in the upstairs bathroom. It was in a bedroom at the back of the property where Jeff made the horrific discovery. Now I don't know if Geoffrey Howarth is still alive today, we are talking almost 23 years ago now, and he'll be well advanced in years if he is so. But the sight that greeted him in that back bedroom is surely one that he either will, or did, take to his grave with him. He later told the Liverpool Echo, The house was not like she would keep it, it was untidy. We were calling out her name but there was no reply, so we went upstairs. We found her in the back bedroom, lying on a bed near the door. Her grandchildren used to sleep there when they came to stay. She was clearly, obviously dead. I've never seen anything like it in my life. We dashed downstairs and rang 999. I never ever thought I would ever see anything like that. The sight that met Jeff was as follows. Alice Rye lay on her back on a single bed that was parallel to the bedroom door. She was naked from the waist down 
and her hands were tied tightly behind her back with a length of blue paint-spattered rope. Her upper clothing, an orange woolen sweater, had not been removed, but had been pushed up to reveal extensive blood staining around her torso, later found at post-mortem to be a result of the four stab wounds that she'd received to the chest and back, one so vicious that it was found to have penetrated her heart to a depth of 11 centimetres. A piece of cloth was also wound around her neck as some form of ligature, and a soaking wet towel had been forced into her mouth, possibly as a gag, possibly as something even more horrific and sinister. But what chilled and sickened Geoffrey, Phyllis, and detectives who subsequently attended the scene most, was Alice's killer's final act of defilement upon her. Her killer had inserted two small kitchen knives into her eyes, and had left them there. I'll just let that sink in for a second. Now I debated long and hard whether to sanitise the description of how Alice's body was found somewhat, because I take no pleasure whatsoever in describing something so obscene and horrific, and I'm also in complete mind of any of Alice's relatives possibly hearing this. I wouldn't want it thought for a single second that I was glorifying anything or sensationalising her death in any way. I did decide to describe exactly how the scene was because I wanted to bring home the pure atrocity of her death and for you to see exactly why such a person responsible can only really be described as a monster because there is no other word is there. A person cannot have a single ounce of humanity to so brutally slaughter a kind-hearted old lady like that and to commit such a horrific indignity upon her. There is no room on the planet for such evil. Of course, Jeff and Phyllis immediately had summoned police and, shaken, were waiting for them on the steps of number 23 Poulton Road when they arrived only a few minutes later. As the house and street were sealed off and placed under police guard, a senior crime team and photographer moved into the property and a badly shaken Jeffrey and Phyllis were taken aside to be spoken to for the purposes of producing statements from them. A team of 70 detectives was drafted in to begin the hunt for the killer, spearheaded by Detective Superintendent Jeff Harrison, who was also the senior officer in the case that we featured last episode on the show. As I've said, the foul murders committed only 18 months earlier and less than two miles away by Stephen Heaney. Speaking to the Liverpool Echo very early in the inquiry, Detective Superintendent Harrison was quoted as saying, It was probably sexually motivated. Mrs. Rye suffered extremely vicious wounds. The house was not ransacked and there was no forced entry, so the killer probably just knocked on the door. We ask people to be very vigilant. We don't know what we're dealing with. No mention was made of the exact mutilation that Alice had suffered for two reasons. Police often hold back information such as that as it helps weed out anyone who may randomly confess to the crime as it's knowledge only the killer would have. Both Geoffrey and Phyllis were told strictly by police not to disclose what they'd seen and it's unlikely that they would have idly gossiped about such a thing anyway. Such must have been their horror and devastation at losing a beloved friend and neighbour. Secondly, it was simply not to add even more terror to the old folk living alone in the area than news of such a brutal murder would have brought anyway. I mean, 
Look at the fear and hysteria that was caused by the crimes of Kenneth Erskine some 10 years before in South London, or the rampage that Delroy Grant was on at the time this murder happened. News of the crime filtering out scared old folk in the area enough, but it also angered and sickened residents, summed up by a quote that the Reverend Justin Mote, the chaplain of Holy Trinity Church, where Alice was a parishioner, gave to the Liverpool Echo. Alice Rye was a lady of poised dignity and elegance, he said, before adding. She was a beautiful woman, very gracious. People around here are shocked. It's a quiet suburban and safe area, which has clearly been intruded on by evil. As Alice's devastated family, her sister, children and grandchildren, tried to accept such horror, the resulting police investigation was very intense, with police discounting no possibilities whatsoever. The post-mortem, carried out by Home Office pathologist Dr Paul Johnson, had revealed that Alice had most likely died at some time the previous afternoon, with cause of death being the result of massive blood loss due to the deep stab wound to the heart. Alice was also found to have been stabbed a further time in the chest and twice in the back. Although she'd not been raped, her body did show signs of having been what is very ominously described as sexually tortured. Now no specific details as such concerning what this alludes to have ever been released, however, and to be honest, it isn't something that I really wish to speculate on. It really, really isn't. But what was released to the press is that at some point the killer had partly choked Alice with a ligature and had also used a towel as a gag which had then been saturated with water. Now I'm sure you kind of get the idea, a form of horrific water torture there. It was also believed that the kitchen knives had been inserted into her eye sockets after death. There's no words, is there? No words whatsoever. And the sum total... For such an awful prolonged attack, a simple few items of costume jewellery and a perverse trophy. Whilst the search of the local spittle area had gotten underway looking for a discarded murder weapon and a forensic team were examining number 23 Poulton Road, house-to-house -house inquiries in the local area were undertaken and a team of officers began looking through the files for anyone with a criminal record including history of extreme violence and or mental illness, thinking that someone that could commit such horror must have offended before. They particularly looked at individuals who'd taken a trophy from the scene of their crimes, focusing upon those who'd taken items of clothing, as Alice's knickers had not just been removed from her person, but they appeared to have been taken away by the killer. Just when you thought it couldn't get much worse, eh? But no obvious suspect from this search jumped out, and although several people were looked at, each was ruled out individually. It was to be the same with the other inquiries. Everyone who'd been seen in the Poulton Road area on the day of the murder was traced and eliminated, and of course, Alice's immediate neighbours Jeff and Phyllis had not seen or heard anything untoward. There was no sign of any forced entry to number 23 either, so police considered the possibility that Alice may possibly known a killer, or a killer had been admitted to the house under the pretense of perhaps being an official of some kind. Yet Alice was known to be extremely security conscious and would have unlikely let anyone into her house without them holding official identification, so was it someone who was known to her? 
But then who on earth could have had such a grudge against the church-going, kindly old lady to inflict such horror upon her? Unsurprisingly, not one single suspect who was known to Alice emerged. It seemed more and more likely that Alice's killer was what detectives feared most because it makes the investigation that much more difficult, a stranger to her. And there were also conflicting ideas for a motive behind the murder. On one hand, it was predominantly a sex crime and a few random pieces of jewellery, including an 8-inch old bracelet and two 24-inch gold and silver chains, were taken as almost only an afterthought. As Detective Superintendent Harrison told the press, the house showed no signs of being ransacked at all, whereas it could also be suggested that this may have begun as a theft that then got way out of hand, an affluent-looking property targeted, a widow tied up, then tortured for her financial details, and killed out of rage when she either could not or would not provide them. But did at some point it turn into sexual pleasure? And why the macabre signature? Forensically, number 23 didn't provide any solid leads for police either. Although there were several sets of fingerprints found within the property, all but 18 of these were eventually eliminated, some had even dated back further than 6 years. There were no other traces of the killer found at the scene, no blood, semen, footprints even, but he had left behind two items. The rope that had been used to bind Alice's hands was blue polyester rope, the type most widely used, and it was paint spattered as though it had been used before in construction. It was unlikely something the house-proud widow would have had lying about in her home, and no matching rope was found in the side garage of the house, so it was thought likely that the killer had brought it with him. The second item was a used black shoelace that was discovered lying on the bed underneath Alice's body when it came to be moved. So, after several weeks, when house-to-house inquiries lead nowhere, you have no witnesses, no suspects, and have such an evil killer at large that you so badly need and want caught before he strikes again, what do you do? Or what did you do back in the late 90s? You get onto Crime Watch UK, that's what you do. Six weeks after the murder, a reconstruction of Alice's final known movements was filmed around the Pulton Road area, and her case was featured as an appeal in the February 1997 edition of the show, which frustratingly, although there are loads of old Crime Watch episodes available on YouTube, this edition is one of the ones that are missing, so I couldn't get to view it for the purpose of researching the episode. On Tuesday the 11th of February 1997, Detective Chief Superintendent Harrison appeared on the programme where he appealed to the nationwide public for anyone having information concerning the crime to come forward, stressing the dire need to catch this killer before he struck again. He referred to Alice's murder being particularly horrific without going into full disclosure concerning the mutilations that she'd received and gave a list of the few items of jewellery that were missing from her home. He also made public that the charity Crime Stoppers had offered a £5,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of Alice's killer. Now whilst Crime Watch had many notable successes as a result of its appeals when it was on, because it was a worthwhile useful show after all BBC, you twats, it's been a while since we've chastised those bastards on the show eh? Unfortunately, it could not class its appeal concerning the murder of Alice Wright as one of these. Because I haven't seen the episode, I can't comment upon how the points of appeal came across, but it was a bit of a disappointment regardless. 
Few calls were received by the incident room, and those that they did receive came from either well-meaning but mistaken members of the public, or time-wasting hoaxers. It ultimately advanced the police inquiry no further on than they were before. By July 1997, police were still no closer in their efforts to catch the killer. Alice's body had by that time been released for burial in March 1997 and her funeral was held on Thursday the 3rd of April at Holy Trinity Church in Spittal before she was buried in Anglesey in a home area of North Wales. Coinciding with her funeral, police had released a fresh appeal poster concerning the murder in May of that year but although there was still a drive within the investigating team, as we've said countless times before, crime doesn't wait in line does it? Personnel were needed elsewhere, and so the investigating team had been scaled down from the 60 officers working on the case at the turn of the year to just 18 officers. The inquiry headquarters had also been moved from Wallasey Police Station to the smaller sub-police station at Bebbington. Now it must be incredibly frustrating to be on such a case, knowing that there's a killer out there that you desperately want to see caught and brought to justice for such an awful crime, but having exhausted every bit of information that you have available. It would proper haunt me, I know it would. And this is what the team investigating Alice's murder faced. Over the eight months since the crime, they'd looked at every possible angle that they could out of the limited scope of evidence that they had, and it had brought them no closer to catching a killer, instead just leading to dead ends. Now inquiries such as this are never closed, marked as unsolved, but they do become cold cases and fall into the status of active with regular reviews, where they await any new information coming to the attention of police which may lead to successful detection and conviction of the killer. Sometimes this information may come after a couple of months, in other cases years, and sometimes it may be in the most unexpected of ways. This was exactly what happened in May 1998, almost 18 months after Alice's murder. Like all police forces, it's not just on films where the go-to person is some sort of shoe shiner at a train station. Merseyside police have regular informants who spill the beans about crimes that they have information about to a selected officer who is deemed their handler in exchange for monetary gain or a possible reduction in any criminal sentence that the informant may receive at a future date. One such handler was Detective Sergeant Frank Anderson, who was approached one day in late May of 1998 by one of his informants, a 58-year-old petty criminal named Kevin Joseph Morrison. Morrison, who had a nomadic lifestyle with a long history of offending, had been a CI since 1994 and had passed useful and accurate information on to Detective Sergeant Anderson several times before so he was more than prepared to listen when Morrison approached him claiming to have information about a job on the Wirral, a murder. However, before he would say any more, Morrison claimed that he wanted money, there was, after all, a £5,000 reward still available for information leading to the arrest of the perpetrator in the case he claimed to have information about, he wanted guaranteed protection, and he wanted to be housed as he lived with his daughter and dog in a squalid caravan in the Cheshire town of Nantwich at the time. When whatever arrangements or agreements were put in place, Morrison then proceeded to tell his story, beginning with, You'll be surprised by what I'm going to tell you. You're going to be convinced that either I did the murder, or the fellow I'm going to tell you about done the murder. It can only be me, 
or somebody who's told me. The case Morrison was discussing was the murder of Alice Rye. Morrison claimed that on the afternoon that Alice had been murdered, he was contacted by an acquaintance of his, a 50-year-old named Keith Darlington, who wanted to meet, so Morrison had gone along to. When the two men met, Morrison claimed that Keith Darlington had asked him to look after, in Morrison's own words, a bag of stuff from a robbery. Morrison had agreed to do this, and looking into the bag later, once he'd been given it, saw that it was filled with a couple of items of jewellery, bank statements, credit cards and a bus pass, all in the name of Alice Rye. The bag, or parcel as it's variously described through certain sources, also contained the remnants of a bloodstained knife that had been broken into three parts. Now Morrison claimed that although this was alarming, he'd done nothing about this until he'd read details of the murder in newspapers two days after Alice had been killed, the day after her body had been discovered. Morrison claimed that he'd subsequently contacted Keith Darlington by telephone and requested to meet, to which Darlington agreed, and the two met in the car park of Ellesmere Boat Museum on the Saturday afternoon, 14th of December. Now I remember going to Ellesmere Boat Museum for a school trip many years ago. There was none of this skiing in Italy or let's go pearl diving off Polynesia or that bollocks back then. It was wander around this old museum, have your packed lunch, get a pen knife or a key ring from the gift shop, then back on the bus home, school trip done for another year that was. Morrison claimed that upon meeting in the car park of the boat museum, he'd asked Darlington about the parcel he'd given him to safeguard which Darlington had agreed been taken from Alice Rye, and that he had killed her. Darlington allegedly told him, I killed her because she wouldn't tell me what I wanted to know. She wouldn't give me her pin number. I'd gone on to the Wirral to look for someone who lived on their own, a lady. I went to the library and looked through the electoral roll, and I found a missus without a mister. I knocked on the door, she let me in, and I produced a knife and took her upstairs to the bedroom at the back of the house. Morrison then claimed Darlington had told him how he'd tortured and then murdered Alice, even why he'd inserted kitchen knives into her eyes, saying, I watch Cracker. They're going to do a psychological profile of this guy, and they won't be looking for me. They'll be looking for a nutter. Nutter indeed, eh? Morrison claimed that he'd remained silent ever since out of fear of Darlington and had disposed of the jewellery, the cards and the paperwork and buried the pieces of knife on a patch of land at the rear of his caravan. It had gnawed away at his conscience, however, until he'd decided to come forward to tell all. Now, Detective Sergeant Anderson indeed listened to this remarkable story because the specific details of the mutilations that Alice had suffered had not been released to the general public, as we've said. The statement Morrison had begun his story with was indeed true. It could only be him or Keith Darlington. However, it's unlikely that he'd considered that maybe, just maybe, police may err on the side of caution and actually arrest both of them, just in case, like, he was lying, you know. Over the weekend of the 5th and 6th of June 1998 then, 50-year-old Keith Darlington was arrested at his home in Ellesmere Port, whilst Kevin Morrison was arrested at the caravan that he lived in in the Pinfold Centre in Poole near Nantwich. Both men were taken to Bemington Police Station, where they were questioned simultaneously. 
Keith Darlington strenuously denied the story that Morrison had come out with. Although he indeed agreed that he knew Kevin Morrison, he was more of an acquaintance rather than a friend. The two men had met in the late 1980s when they'd lived in the same street in Ellesmere Port and had gotten past mere nodding terms when both were found to have allotments on the same patch. But that had been the extent of their relationship. They'd perhaps speak if they were in the pub, say hello whilst passing or share a brew while they were on the allotments. But they certainly weren't friends as such. Keith denied meeting with Morrison to give him a parcel to keep and denied meeting him once again four days later. He hadn't seen Morrison in ages, he claimed. But he most strenuously denied having any involvement whatsoever in the murder of Alice Rye. He was mystified as to why Morrison had come out with such a tale implicating him and when asked for his movements on the day of Alice's murder was able to provide police with a pretty unshakable alibi. Keith had been unemployed at the time of the murder and on Tuesday afternoons he went to sign on at the local Department of Social Security in Ellesmere Port to collect his unemployment benefit. You don't miss your dole after all. A check with the DSS subsequently revealed that indeed Keith Darlington had been in Ellesmere Port signing on on the Tuesday afternoon in question between 3pm and 3.30pm, the exact time that Alice was thought to have been murdered. He had no history of violence or any criminal record whatsoever and pending further inquiries was released on police bail. That left police with Kevin Morrison. Throughout countless interviews, Morrison stuck to the story that he told Detective Sergeant Anderson and maintained that any information he'd given police had come from the tale Darlington had told him or what he'd read in the newspapers. By this time, however, police were convinced that they had Alice's actual killer sat in front of them and Morrison was kept in custody whilst a search of his squalid caravan was made. Alongside several items that were removed from the Torah, including a briefcase, a penknife, a length of blue rope and several items of clothing, buried a short distance away from the rear of the caravan, a knife, broken into three parts as Morrison had claimed, was found. It was fast-tracked to the Forensic Science Services at Chorley for examination, and based upon this knife, on Tuesday the 9th of June 1998, Morrison was charged with disposing of a gold bracelet, a Seiko wristwatch, and costume jewellery belonging to Alice Rye. He also faced the charge of attempting to pervert the course of justice by disposing of a knife he believed to be a murder weapon with intent to impede the apprehension of a person who committed the murder. It was also reported that Morrison also faced further unrelated charges of theft, deception, receiving stolen property, rape and two other matters under the Sexual Offences Act, although specific details concerning these offences I was unable to find through research. Morrison showed no emotion during the 10 minute hearing, speaking only to confirm his name and address and was remanded in custody with committal proceedings set for July the 21st. Although no charge of murder could be brought as there was no forensic evidence linking him to the crime, it was enough to hold Morrison whilst police searched for evidence to link him to the murder. Step up the forensic science services. When Morrison had been arrested, the search of his car and caravan had also revealed documentation purporting to a lock-up garage that Morrison kept in Worcester Walk in Ellesmere Port. 
This lockup was searched, and amongst the hoarded crap that police found there, a supermarket shopping trolley containing 14 pairs of women's knickers was discovered. None of these were new in any way, and at least one set of them was an old-fashioned pair. They'd been tested, and almost all of them revealed traces of Morrison's DNA. When Morrison had been questioned about these, he claimed that he'd bought them for his daughter at a flea market, but had often ended up wearing them himself because he was so skint. Now it's fine buying clothes from a chazzer, it really is, isn't it? But would you really wear second-hand underwear? I ask you guys, really? Would you? Ugh, no way. But there was nothing to disprove this claim. I mean, some people are oddballs after all, aren't they? But police remembered distinctly that Alice's underwear had been taken from the scene of the murder. Could her underwear be the old-fashioned pair found in the lockup that had tested positive for the DNA of Kevin Morrison? Now, recognising if they were, then there would be traces of her own cellular DNA present upon the garments, scientists at the Forensic Science Services, the same team that a few years later performed such groundbreaking forensic work to bring John Cooper to justice, and I thought we'd gotten away from that shy talk for the series, cut the garment up into 22 different pieces. They selected two or three sections cut from the crotch area, and after performing careful reanalysis using a perfected extraction technique, were able to obtain two DNA profiles from these sections. One was the already established profile of Kevin Morrison, and the other, there was a 1 in 69 million chance that it had come from anyone other than Alice Rye. When Morrison was told that the garment was being tested, he reportedly said, Well then, if you think they've been worn, there'll be DNA on them, and you can match them to Alice Rye, and I'm in big trouble. On Tuesday the 18th of August 1998, Kevin Morrison was charged with the murder of Alice Rye. At a 15-minute hearing at Birkenhead Magistrates Court, he spoke only to confirm his name and address before being remanded in custody to await trial. Morrison's trial began at Liverpool Crown Court on Monday the 5th of July 1999, where he pleaded not guilty to the murder of Alice Rye. Robert Fordham QC for the prosecution told the jury of nine women and three men, This is a case of great unusualness and great horror and great wickedness. It is of great horror that it's alleged that the defendant not only murdered Alice Rye but after death mutilated her. It is a case of great wickedness because this defendant has sought quite badly to blame another for her death and it is a case of great unusualness because had it not been for an initiative taken by this defendant it's unlikely that he would have been brought to justice. Mr Fordham then proceeded to tell the jury of Morrison's account the previous year to Detective Sergeant Anderson how he'd relayed details of 74-year-old Alice's murder in an elaborate tip-off laying the blame for the crime squarely at the feet of Keith Darlington, even down to Darlington claiming to have put knives in Alice's eyes to confuse the police into looking for a nutter. Although many facts that he'd related had never been disclosed to the public, his account of the murder was remarkably accurate in every aspect but one, said Mr Fordham. Morrison, and not the man he tried to incriminate, was the murderer. 
Mr Fordham then told the jury how it had been Morrison, who he described as a cruel lunatic and a sexual oddity, a circuit not properly wired, that chillingly sought out a victim after researching the electoral role for a female living alone in the Wirral. Once he'd selected Alice Rye, Morrison called around to her address with a briefcase where he conned his way inside the security-conscious Alice's home. Wearing gloves, because not one of the unidentified fingerprints discovered in number 23 matched Morrison's, he then forced Mrs. Rye at knife point to an upstairs back bedroom where she was tied and gagged and sexually tortured with a knife. He said Morrison had also tortured Miss Rye when she refused or was unable to give him the pin number of her bank card by stuffing a towel in her mouth and pouring water on it. She could or would not still tell him the number so he started choking her and had then repeatedly stabbed her in the chest and back, one wound penetrating her heart to a depth of at least 11 centimetres because she could identify him. After her death, small kitchen knives these were even shown to the jury as exhibits, were pushed into each eye by the scheme in Morrison to make police believe they were looking for a nutter. Mr Fordham added, If there is any consolation, it is that the depraved act was almost certainly committed after death. The man was not simulating a nutter, he was a nutter. The jury were only shown one carefully selected photograph of the crime scene, as although there were others available, they were deemed too disturbing to show. No others were requested from anybody. Over the next few days of the trial, the jury heard testimony from several witnesses and police officers involved in the hunt, including Phyllis Kellett and Geoffrey Howarth, who described finding Alice's body, and Keith Darlington, who stood in the dock and told the court that Morrison's accusation were a pack of lies. Various police officers then described how over the inquiry a total of 60,000 man-hours had been spent taking 1,373 statements, making 5,420 inquiries in total, visiting 6,222 homes, recording 7,729 names and checking 1,700 vehicles. Morrison's history as an informant was also recounted, and accounts of the repeated denials and explanations that he'd given when evidence linking him to the murder was presented to him. But perhaps the most powerful witness to take the stand was forensic scientist Sarah Brownhill, who explained to the court the procedure used that had revealed the presence of the DNA of both Morrison and Alice Rye on a pair of knickers recovered from Morrison's lock-up garage in Ellesmere Port. And further to this, tests on items recovered from Morrison's caravan, the briefcase and penknife, had revealed orange woolen fibres that matched perfectly the jersey that Alice Rye had been wearing when she was murdered and the shoelace found underneath her body. The rope discovered in Morrison's caravan also had matching paint flecks to the length used to bind Alice's wrists. Looking more a bit up shit creek than Prince Andrew there, Morrison, I think. Morrison himself took the stand and gave evidence for two days, where he dismissed the scientific evidence at the trial as purely coincidental and irrelevant, and claimed that he couldn't comment upon it because he was not properly qualified to. He then stuck doggedly to his story that he had told police the previous year, and in the face of everything the court had already heard, blamed Keith Darlington. Tape-recorded interviews between Morrison and police were played to the court, in which he was heard to say, 
It is possible that Keith Darlington gave me such a detailed account because if in the future he became a suspect, he could admit the murder and give a different account of what he did. Suspicion would move away from him and onto me because of the different version of events. I'm now sure that's why he gave me all the details that he did. Maybe it was just opportune when he spotted me. He knows me and he knows I am an intelligent man. Morrison who had part of a finger on his right hand amputated in 1996, told the trial that due to this, he would have found it difficult to hold the knife sufficiently well to stab Mrs. Rye, and further denied suggestions that had been raised that he went to the police only out of greed to collect the £5,000 in reward money, instead saying that it was his conscience, but not a guilty conscience, that had persuaded him to come forward. The jury, however, was unimpressed by his pathetic far-fetched claims and denials, and after a nine-day trial on Friday, July the 16th, deliberated for just three and a half hours before returning a unanimous verdict of guilty of the murder of Alice Rye. Sentencing Morrison to life imprisonment, Mr Justice Douglas Brown told him, You are a truly evil man, and you are also on the evidence very dangerous. The jury convicted you of a wicked murder which was obviously planned and carried out in a cruel and ruthless manner. What made you submit yourself to the scrutiny of the police may never be known for certain, but you obviously wanted a substantial reward and took the chance that after 18 months nothing would connect you with this murder. You then callously accused an innocent man causing him great distress and those allegations were, of course, totally false. That they were false was demonstrated by the great skill of the Forensic Science Service, both government and private, to whose application and perseverance the public owes a considerable debt. Your gamble failed because of the forensic science evidence and the diligent work of the investigating police officers. The sentence upon you is one of life imprisonment. The judge then ordered Morrison to serve a minimum of 18 years imprisonment before any application for parole could be made. Morrison showed no emotion in the crowded courtroom when the verdict was returned, nor when the sentence was passed. A total of 20 other charges, including those alleging rape, indecent assault and serious sexual offences, spanning 1968 to 1986 by Morrison against three girls, the youngest aged six, were laid on the file against him, along with seven charges alleging theft, handling stolen goods, obtaining property by deception and burglary against Morrison between January 1995 and May 1998. The identities of the victims in these offences have never been released and Morrison had denied all of these charges also. He then deservedly was taken away to begin his life sentence, where he even smirked when he was taken to the cells by two prison officers. After the verdict, Detective Superintendent Dave Smith, a senior officer involved in the case, said, the victim's family have been absolutely superb. They've offered support and encouragement throughout this investigation. The result is a testimony to the family, the people of Wirral and the Merseyside Police working together to ensure the safety of the community. So what manner of evil is it that can commit such an atrocity? Born in Birkenhead in 1939, as one of nine children to an Irish mother and a Birkenhead father, Morrison was an unruly child that corporal punishment failed to do any good to. 
Disruptive as a pupil, he was expelled from St. Ansel's Roman Catholic Grammar School in Birkenhead in 1952, aged just 13, following the first of what was to be many court appearances, this one for theft of biscuits from the school tuck shop. Following his expulsion, he spent time in reform school before drifting into odd jobs such as window cleaning, gardening, driving a taxi and working as a labourer on farms across Cheshire and the Wirral. Morrison also reportedly spent some time in the army for his national service, although it's undisclosed as to the length and why exactly he left. He'd married in 1962 in a union that went on to produce three daughters, but the marriage was never a happy one. Throughout the marriage, Morrison was committing petty crime and was to receive several convictions and short prison sentences, including being convicted in 1966 of posing as a telephone engineer to gain access to people's houses. There are no reports concerning Morrison over the 1970s, but his marriage was to ultimately end in divorce in 1981. His wife and two youngest daughters subsequently moved to Monmouthshire to begin a new life, severing all contact with Morrison, although he retained contact with his eldest daughter, Angela. Following the cessation of his marriage, Morrison adopted a transient lifestyle, and it's difficult to pinpoint him in any particular area over the following few years until the late 1980s, where we know he was living in Ellesmere Port, as it was here that he'd met Keith Darlington, who he was to accuse of murder almost a decade later. By the early 1990s, Morrison and his 34-year-old eldest daughter Angela and a German shepherd named Saber, who'd all joined him in a transient lifestyle, were living from campsite to campsite until after five years, home was a squalid touring caravan on a site near Nantwich in Cheshire, where they remained until his arrest for murder in 1998. And it was a proper basic existence. They cooked meals on a gas stove and washed in a container of cold water that was kept alongside the caravan. The interior of the caravan was filthy and cluttered and any income for the pair came from petty crime, unemployment benefit or of course money from Morrison being a police informant which he established himself as in 1994. By all accounts, although they were considered scruffy and odd in appearance, they paid their site fees wherever they were on time in full and tended to keep to themselves. Despite this appearance and lifestyle, Morrison considered himself a bit of a cut above others. Of some reported intelligence, he classed himself as well-read and articulate, and whilst he was on remand awaiting trial for Alice's murder, it was remarked upon just how much he loved doing puzzles and crosswords, and was especially fascinated with riddles, which he would try to engage all who would give him the time of day with. So intelligent did he consider himself to be that he even reportedly directed his own defence team at his trial as to how he believed this defence should be best presented, arrogantly considering himself to know best. And for someone who considered himself to be so intelligent, in the end simple greed overtook this. Morrison saw a £5,000 reward and used his status as a police informant, arrogantly thinking that he would not be connected with the crime that he'd committed. He was even willing to blame a totally innocent man for his own horrific actions. Can you believe the nerve of that, eh? Well, that worked for you, didn't it, Morrison, you bellend? Following his conviction, Merseyside police were reportedly set to question Morrison about the other sets of knickers that were found in the lock-up garage, suspecting that they could be trophies from other unsolved crimes, sex attacks, 
or possibly even unsolved murders. However, it's not reported as to him facing any further charges and any results of such interviews have not been reported upon or are unavailable. What is reported, however, is that in 2011, Morrison applied to the High Court for a reduction in the minimum term that he'd been set, his lawyers challenging this by arguing that the minimum jail period should have been set at 14 years or at most 15 years. But on the 16th of May 2011, his application was rejected by Mrs Justice Thirlwall, who threw out Morrison's bid for a cut in the term that could have seen him back on the streets as early as 2012. In her judgement, the judge described Alice's murder as premeditated, sadistic and planned, referring to the evidence that Morrison had spent long periods in a local library studying the electoral role for a suitable victim. Mrs Justice Thirlwall said that, although age was his only mitigation, it was troubling that he should commit such a dreadful offence at that age. Had she been sentencing him now, she added, the minimum term would have been 20 years, but as she couldn't increase his punishment, it would remain 18 years. This decision meant that, taking into account the time Morrison had spent in custody on remand prior to his trial, he would not be allowed to apply for release until the summer of 2016 at the earliest. He would only then be freed if it was considered safe to do so by the parole board, and he would remain on licence with the threat of immediate prison recall if he put a foot wrong for the remainder of his life. Now through research I was unable to find out whether Morrison remains in prison to this day, whether he's been released on licence, whether he's even still alive. I can only hope that if he is still alive, as he'll now be 80 years old if so, so there's a real possibility that he's shuffled off, I hope that he's still incarcerated. The pure devastation to Alice's family that this monster caused, well, there surely isn't a place in society for a creature such as that, and Morrison deserves to spend the end of his days locked away for such a horrific crime, or for a few trinkets and a trophy pair of knickers. If, in the unlikely event that the horror of this case was ever lessened for a second, then heed the words of Alice's older sister Anne, in a quote taken from the Liverpool Echo only shortly after Alice's death. Devastated is not the word to describe what I feel. It has destroyed my life as well as Alice's. I just keep asking, why did this happen? And that horror soon comes back, doesn't it? You indeed just have to ask why. Kevin Morrison, yet another individual who, I'm sure that you'll agree, you can't call anything but a monster, can you? What pit of darkness do you need to crawl from to commit such horror upon a gentle old soul who never did anything to harm or wrong anybody in her life, to tie her up, to sexually torture her at knife point, which doesn't even bear thinking about really, to then kill her, stabbing her so savagely that the knife penetrates so deeply into her heart? Now that's already evil beyond description, but once she was dead, to insert kitchen knives into her eyes to try and throw police off the scent, where does such wickedness even enter somebody's head? For a few items of jewellery and a trophy pair of knickers, it's horror that's really beyond describing. My heart proper went out to Alice's family while I was researching this episode because I imagine my own nana who's been passed away for many years by now but who when she was alive was similar in nature to Alice who's a kind-hearted widow who would give anybody a last. 
I thought I would feel in the same circumstances, which I couldn't, didn't even want to imagine. And I also felt for Phyllis and Jeff. I mean, imagine finding a friend and beloved neighbour in such horrific, degrading circumstances. It's surely something you take to your grave with you, isn't it? Now, it proper got to me this case did, as I'm sure that you can probably gather. When you research crimes for a show such as this, you do spend some time steeped in each individual one. And although they all stay with you in some form, some do that much more than others. And Alice's sad case is one of these. I've been very vocal in episodes in the past, airing my views concerning crimes against the elderly. They fill me with a deeper level of horror and anger, and those who commit them, well, they have no place on this earth as far as I'm concerned. People like Kenneth Erskine, Delroy Grant, their crimes are despicable enough that they're deservedly locked away for the remainder of their lives. But Kevin Morrison, I just thought this guy was something else, a different level of evil. I have no wish to even try to look into his mindset, but for someone able to so cold-bloodedly commit such a crime and to display the signature that he did from selecting a victim using the electoral roll and bluffing his way into a property, complete with a briefcase for pretense to allay any fears, to inserting kitchen knives into Alice's eyes after death, then when he believed the coast was clear enough for him, attempt to frame an innocent man out of pure greed. A monster indeed that is, isn't it? I'd also bet a month's wages that Morrison has killed before he killed Alice Rye. Yes, he had a criminal past of dishonesty and reportedly historic sexual offences, so we already know he's a scumbag and a predator, but does a person really commit such an organised murder with such distinct planning and mutilation as a first killing, and at such a late age as well? It would be well worth examining Morrison's movements over the years, which, due to his nomadic lifestyle, would understandably be a difficult task, but to see if he can be pinpointed to any areas where there are similar, still unsolved crimes involving similar victims. Now, one I was immediately struck with was the case of Violet Milsom, an unsolved Bristol murder that I featured in the Avon and Somerset Unsolved episode from the second series of the show. Have a listen back into that one if you've got the time, guys, and see what you think. So what do you reckon, then? Is it possible that Kevin Morrison has committed other killings, or did he just commit this one crime, keep his head down until he thought he'd gotten away with it, and was then enticed out 18 months later by greed, arrogant and callous enough to think that he could blame an innocent man, but to be willing to also? I know it's an incredibly distressing one, but I'd appreciate as always hearing your thoughts and feedback concerning the case featured within the episode this week, which you can hear should you wish to in the episode thread in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Facebook discussion group. You can also get in touch with me through the show's Twitter, Instagram, you can email me about it, whatever suits you guys best should you want to. That is almost it from me for this week. And I'm also having a week's break now, so I shall be back in two weeks' time with a fresh episode. If you can't wait until then for fresh enthusiasts, then Patreon bonus episode 23 will be out shortly for supporters. So if you fancy hearing the tale behind the enigma of Enfield Lodge, head over to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on the Patreon site or use the ever-present link in this week's episode show notes. On that note, I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Thank you all very much for joining me today, and goodbye for now.